0: Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today before starting, I have a correction from last week's episode. In addition to my difficulties pronouncing meteorologist, a word that still gives me trouble, I mispronounced Antietam so badly that it was like nails on a chalkboard for my mother, a retired U.S. history professor, who was also, incidentally, my U.S. history professor. I am so embarrassed. Apparently, so was she. Sorry, Mom. Also, as a quick note, uh, there will be some strong language in this week's episode, so if that bothers you, please skip. Recently, I've been bombarded by news stories of women coming forward with tales of sexual harassment and abuse in Hollywood, and I was moved by the many accounts of Me Too from family and friends on Facebook. I also came across a charming and simultaneously terrifying antidote, antidote not antidote, uh, about one of my favorite stars, Carrie Fisher, that has inspired this week's episode. Emily Price wrote the following article for Fortune.com. In the wake of the allegations against Harvey Weinstein, many women, in Hollywood, many women and Hollywood have started to step forward about their own experiences with not only Weinstein, but other Hollywood bigwigs as well. One woman, Heather Ross, recently spoke to an Arizona radio station about her experience with an unnamed Oscar-winning producer that invited her to dinner, and when he picked her up, pulled the car over and climbed on top of her, pinning her to her seat. People reports that when Ross was able to escape the vehicle, the producer warned her she would never make a movie in my town. Ross happened to be friends with the late Carrie Fisher, and when she told her what happened, Fisher did something only a good friend would do. She delivered a cow tongue to his office, wrapped in a Tiffany box with a white bow. Along with the tongue was a rather pointed note. If you ever touch my darling Heather or any other woman again, the next delivery will be something of yours in a much smaller box. Reading this article inspired me to finally read Miss Fisher's memoir that had been sitting in my Kindle library for the past few months, The Princess Diarist, about her experience making Star Wars and featuring journal entries from the time she was filming. Grace Bierman writes this review of it for The Torch. Who do I think I would have been if I hadn't been Princess Leia? Am I Princess Leia or is she me? Split the difference and you'd be closer to the truth. This striking musing appears at the end of the first chapter of Carrie Fisher's 2016 memoir, The Princess Diarist. The book is a fascinating, often heartbreaking look at Fisher's life and mind, as well as a sobering picture of what it's like to be immensely famous before becoming a legal adult. I went into The Princess Diarist expecting it to be funny and light. I left deeply saddened but impressed by Fisher's witty writing and her deep thoughtfulness. The Princess Diarist is divided into three sections. The first contains background information about Fisher's life up until Star Wars and some behind-the-scenes stories from filming. And most famously, it reveals that she and Harrison Ford, who played Han Solo, had an affair while filming the first Star Wars film. But... Fisher also touches on more significant issues. She tells several stories that remind the reader how sexism and even sexual harassment have always been a problem in Hollywood. It's painful to read the account of Warren Beatty discussing with a costume designer whether the 17-year-old Fisher should wear a bra while filming shampoo. But even more painful is what we see of Fisher's mind as a teenager— She had abysmally low self-esteem. She thought she was fat, stupid, ugly, and uninteresting. She couldn't imagine that any man would ever love her. The second section is composed of excerpts from the journals Fisher wrote while filming, including both diary entries and poetry. This section is fascinating too, though even more sobering. Her writings show that Fisher was a highly talented writer, even at 19, and also a keen observer of people. She even sees the foolishness of her own extreme self-deprecation, though she's powerless to stop it. In her desperate, miserable diary entries, one can see hints of the mental illness that would haunt her the rest of her life. In one excerpt, she writes, "'My panic is rising again.' My sense of isolation and worthlessness, and no other senses worth mentioning, apparently. It's not nice being inside my head. The third section shifts significantly, discussing Fisher's exploding fame and what it was like for her to be Princess Leia for the rest of her life. She sees clearly how surreal and strange her fame is and helps the reader to see it, too. A large portion of this section discusses autograph signings and encounters with rabid fans, including several extended and rambling speeches she had to listen to. Though these speeches couldn't have been recorded word for word, it's disturbingly obvious that Fisher perfectly captures the spirit of an earnest, talkative fan. One note, though The Princess Diarist is fascinating, well-written, and thought-provoking, I wouldn't buy it as a Christmas gift for your grandmother or younger sister. Fisher uses several R-rated words and mentions sex and drugs frequently. Most college students, though, would probably benefit from Fisher's work. They can learn from her mistakes, as she would have wanted. One of the saddest things about The Princess Diarist is, of course, the inescapable knowledge that Fisher died less than a year after its release. Indeed, one could even say that the book killed her since her fatal heart attack occurred on a plane, flying back from a promotional tour. This knowledge gives an unwarranted sting to many of her musings. For instance, she writes, someone was complaining about how much celebrities charge for autographs at these events, and in our defense, someone said, well, you know, it may cost that much now, but when she dies, it's really going to be worth a lot. So my death is worth something to some people. If I had enough pictures signed, someone could put out a hit on me. It also makes one realize how much was lost when Fisher died too soon. Not only did we lose Princess Leia, we lost an incredibly strong woman, an advocate for ending the stigma still surrounding mental illness, and a truly gifted writer. The Princess Diarist shows us how to write about one's life with style, deep thoughtfulness, wit, and humor. Knowing Fisher's love for that humor, I feel it's my duty to include the words that she wanted in her obituary. She drowned in moonlight, strangled by her own bra. We miss you, Princess Carrie. I'm inspired myself uh, to share a few of those journal entries with you now, if you'll permit me. Miss Beerman is right, even at nineteen, Carrie Fisher was a very talented writer with a unique voice. As someone who also struggles with mental health issues, I I find that she articulates what a lot of people dealing with depression or anxiety must feel at times. From the Princess Diarist, I am the only one who can come to my rescue. I am the only one who can help me now, but I don't know how to help myself. That I want to completely drain myself of all hope, which will leave me safe and dry with nothing to lose. The point where it can only get better if I allowed it to get better. I can't focus on the good things. There are good things going on all around me, but I don't trust them. I can't make use of them, don't have time for them. I'm too preoccupied with my precious panic. It seems to be demanding almost all my attention. My own personal, private collection of panic. I need to write. It keeps me focused for long enough to complete thoughts. To let each train of thought run to its conclusion and let a new one begin. It keeps me thinking. I'm afraid that if I stop writing, I'll stop thinking and start feeling. I can't concentrate when I'm feeling. I try to put the feelings into thoughts or words, but it always seems to come out in disjointed, sweeping statements. Adolescent jargon peppered with random selections from a fairly gaudy vocabulary. I wish that I could leave myself alone. I wish that I could finally feel that I punished myself enough that I deserved time off for all my bad behavior, let myself off the hook, drag myself off the rack where I am both torturer and torturee. It's hard reading something like that and not be not being able to comfort the pe- person going through it, but at the same time, I am so impressed by her depth and intelligence and fierceness even at that age Harrison Ford once told her that she had the eyes of a doe and the balls of a samurai. I think that dichotomy is also captured in her poetry, which flows through her diary entries. This one is my particular favorite. The compromise I made was not an easy thing to do. It was either you or me, and I chose you. Although far from a joker, you spoke in wry, wry riddles. I could have given you so much, but you wanted so little. I thought you might supply some tenderness I lacked, but out of all the things I offered you, you took my breath away, and now I want it back. I never had what I wanted because I would never want what I had. I thought you were different, prettier than most and twice as bad uncompromising and caustic, sort of short and sometimes sweet, I tried to read between your lines as you would so rarely speak, but I gave you far more credit than you were actually due. You see, I thought I was only seeing half the man, but that was all there was to you. You took my breath away, took my breath away, you took my breath away, and now I want it back. Now, since those entries were a little on the dark side, oh my goodness, forgive that pun, I didn't even mean to do that, Um, I wanted to end today's episode with a little levity in the form of some straight talk as Lois Lane explains white male privilege to Superman as written by Rick Stokel for McSweeney's. You walked into the Daily Planet with a resume listing only the name of your high school and a weekend job helping out your dad as a farm hand. Perry White offered you a job as a full-time reporter on the spot. I went to a four-year university and was managing editor of the school paper when it won a pacemaker award, and I had to interview with Perry three times. It wasn't until I handed him a story I wrote on spec detailing an underground dogfighting ring run by a powerful Metropolis Alderman, one that I went undercover for two months to break, that he agreed to give me a three-week tryout. After a while, watching you with newspaper ink stains on your face, bumbling your way around the halls of the Daily Planet, constantly spilling hot coffee on yourself, I felt sorry for you. Maybe I had been unfair. So I worked hard on myself. I spoke to a therapist, took up meditation. At last, I found I was able to stop resenting you and just accept you as a sweet, wholesome guy. You couldn't help it if you were a dopey hack reporter. Then, when the mine explosion happened last month, I watched as Superman arrived to save workers from under the collapsed mine. I cheered along with everyone else in the office. The next morning, you... Clark Kent, miraculously have a front-page story so detailed, it could only have been written by someone who witnessed the event firsthand. "'You saved us, Superman!' the chubby one shouted. Another, less chubby but still out-of-shape Chilleen Miner said, "'I apologize if we smell, Superman. We were down in the mineshaft for quite a while.' Superman thought that yes, they did stink, but he was too polite to agree. Superman momentarily fought off a sneeze." That's how dusty these chilanes are, he thought, dusty enough to tangle with my super nose. Also, there are other sections where you literally slip back and forth between the tents of the first and third person. Suddenly, it's all right there for me. The bare-faced truth. You are Superman. Your story with poor grammar and weak sentence structure is on the front page and my piece on Lex Luthor's corrupt presidential campaign, one that I spent eight weeks fact-checking and verifying as staffers kept popping up murdered, is relegated to below the fold on page four. (laughs) I chose this career because it allows me some independence. I can work a story like no one else mind those details for the big picture and knock a powerful company politician or special interest on its ass but sorry I can't fly I can't simply turn on my super hearing and listen in on a conversation between hired goons I can't dangle thugs from the side of a building drop them and then fly quickly to catch them before they hit the ground and repeat the process until they give me the vital information I need for my report If I want to get a story on nuclear arms trafficking, I have to find a source willing to go on the record, risking their life. My God, do you know how many people I've lost, people who trusted me, who put their lives on the line because they believed in something greater than themselves? I don't sleep at night thinking about all of those I've lost. Look, no one is saying you're not a hero, Clark. You certainly are. But you benefit directly from the advantages you have been given by a patriarchal society that values a white male voice above a woman's, and also from the earth's sun from which you derive all your extraordinary powers. And I have much more to worry about than some green, glowing rock. I'm the same badass bitch, glasses on or glasses off. That's it for this week's episode of Blue Stocking. Oh my goodness, Blue Stocking! Here I am with all of my mishaps and mispronunciations, but I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please feel free to write a review on Google Play or iTunes. Give us a rating. Um, If you don't enjoy it, maybe tell your enemies that you think it's really great and that they might like it Uh, because word of mouth, you know, have a great day and thank you for listening. La la (thingling)